send a church-wide email early this week that will have the link. So if you're not already in Slack, it will invite you into our Slack family, and then you can get into this link. What we're going to do is this. Each week, at the beginning of the week, we're going we're gonna to post an article or a video that's brief but talks about how to study the Bible with the gospel at the center um, and how to prepare sermons even with Jesus as the hero, like this is our focus. So there will be just one article or video to watch each week. Then we'll post the sermon text. You notice next week's text is really short, Philippians 1, 1 through 2. It's right there. And then we'll post up some questions. And you're welcome to interact with one of these questions, all of these questions if you really want to, or none of these questions. See, we're all about that millennial life. We don't force you to do anything, right? You can do what you want to do. In fact, what I would encourage you to do is um, you could have some devotional time in Philippians while we're working towards uh, Easter Sunday and just share your devotional observations in the Slack channel, those that you would like to share. Um, some of us will interact with your, with your input, and I really look forward to incorporating some of your observations and your personal application, even your confessions, um, in our sermons. Now, if I'm going to quote you, here's what I promise. You will not be quoted unless I've talked to you ahead of time and say, I really like what you wrote. I'd like to use it in my sermon. Can I do that? And can I cite your name? So like if you share some personal information in the Slack channel, uh, which it is public, by the way, just so you know, it's not protected in any way. It's public. But I will do that for you. I will ask you before I cite you in a public sermon. Okay? All right. So go ahead and join that channel or wait till early this week. We'll get the uh, invitation sent out. And I really look forward to this. I, I've wanted to do this for a long time. I think it'll be good for our community and uh, for our church family. And I think the Taylor girls are gone. Taylors were here with us for the first worship hour. But um, what I said to them privately and in public, and I just want to say it again for those of you who are in this worship gathering, I really appreciate their hard work on that passage. Not only did they work hard at it, they've gotten up two times publicly that can be pretty intimidating. And I love how they passed the mic. They were each responsible for a portion of it. They killed it. They did a great job. But that should encourage us. We can do this. And uh, I heard you guys this morning. You did a really good job learning Romans 5. So now we have two passages as a family that we've committed to memory. We have Isaiah 12. <laughs> Thank you. And we've got Romans 5 now. And so here's our aim. We're going to choose uh, some more passages that we'll learn together so that by the time December rolls around, each Sunday in kind of November, December, we will be able to review together a passage that we've committed to memory. Um, so we've got two. We'll probably try to get four more, maybe five as the year goes on so that the closing weeks, man, we'll just hit it one passage after another. Like, man, I know that one. Like, I know that too. I know this. We will know these things together um, as a community. And I think it'll be life-giving. So if you get a chance, I just encourage you to send some communication the Taylor girls way this week and just really affirm them for setting an example and for working hard. Uh, it was very life-giving for us. All right, let's pray and let's get down to work. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we need your help. Uh, we need your help in all of life. We're completely dependent upon you, but um, we, we need you to, um, to give life to our hearts uh, many of us come in here just weary, beat down, tired, even tapping out, and we need our lives to be renewed uh, just by your grace and through your word. Some of us come in here really killing it, and we're kind of, um, maybe we're a little puffed up or a little overconfident, or we're, 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 we're relying on you less while life is good. 
Uh, Father, I pray that you would gently bring us back down and remind us of our, our dependency upon you. And Father, for those of us who are, are really struggling, maybe even doubting your faithfulness or your goodness or uh, your truthfulness in your word, I pray that you would uh, very gently, by your grace and through your spirit, remind us of who you are and um, strengthen us in our belief. We, we, we do believe, but we need help with our, our unbelief, the areas of our heart that really struggle. So would you please do that for us? Um, I pray that this time would be life-giving for our church family, simply because, Jesus, you're at the center and you're the hero, um, and you, you, are, you are giving us life as we spend time in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so Romans 5. Um, man, 2019 is really young, isn't it? But for some of you, you feel like you've been in this year for a long time, but it's still... Pretty young, only two months old, not quite even. Um, but for many people in our family, this short year has already been filled with more suffering than we would care to know, right? We, we in our own family here, um, have members of our family who are in seasons of suffering, uh, facing some really, some really challenging season. Or uh, just because we all know the nature of life, if you're in a good season right now, 2019 is young enough you know there's suffering um, in the future. There, there, is, there is suffering that will be encountered, and that's what we as people always have in common. You're either coming out of a challenging season of suffering, or you're in one, or, or you're headed into one. Life, life, is, life is hard. So we have tendencies or temptations in these seasons. Some of you want to go back to 2018, that glory year that was. It was really good then, right? Some of you are nodding no, right? Yeah, no. Um, but oftentimes we want to go back and capture what was really good rather than being in the present. If you're not in a season of suffering, you'd kind of like to capture what you're in right now and just kind of keep that. But we've tried and we can't do that, can we? Time marches on and seasons change. Um, and we need real hope, right? We need to be honest about our seasons of suffering. The gospel gives us the freedom to be honest. So we need, we need real hope. And for many of you this morning, if you are in a season of suffering, what you really need and what you really desire is restored joy. Like you, you would look at yourself and say, I'm just, I'm not joyful right now. Like I'm living and I'm doing what I need to do, but I'm really doing it without, without joy. This morning, we're going to learn that God's glory gives hope, which fuels joy, especially in seasons of suffering. Okay? God's glory gives hope, which fuels joy, especially in seasons of suffering. A few weeks ago, we began our Soli Deo Gloria series. That's just Latin for to God alone be the glory. You've seen the initials SDG in different places, maybe in history. Uh, if you're a musician on some of your kind of historical music pieces, SDG, to God alone be the glory. Actually, it's been about a month since that first sermon because we had the marathon Sunday. Did that throw anybody else off? I mean, I woke up that Monday morning, I almost had to be like, yep, still a pastor, still have a church in Okinawa. Like, that was weird. We just like skipped a week of not even getting together. It was weird. But here we are, and you came back. That's good. Um, so it's been, it's been a while. So let's just revisit the definition that we gave glory in that first week. We define glory this way. Glory is the weight of all that God is. 
and the display of his infinite excellence. So glory is the weight of all that God is. Uh, we, we see him for who he is and the display of his infinite excellence. When we say infinite excellence, what we're, we're simply saying is God has so many attributes and they are all, he is as, as great or as good as you can be in any one of those attributes, like beyond our imagination. So we, can't, we simply can't list them all. If we did try to list them in a single definition, the definition wouldn't help anybody. You wouldn't remember it, it wouldn't be useful. So the display of his infinite excellence. He's strong, he's kind, he's beautiful, he's patient, he's gentle, he's faithful. All of these things, as fully as he can be them, his infinite excellence. So in week one, we learned that we are created for God's glory. This is why we exist. You are created for God's glory. That's what his word tells us. In fact, in Isaiah, this is a way it's spoken in Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Uh, the Father could not say it any more plainly to us. He's looking at you as a son or a daughter and saying, the reason I gave you life was for my glory. We are created for his glory. So what does that mean? As somebody who's created in his image, you were created to see it first, like to see his glory. Like, wow, he is, he is amazing. He's beautiful. We see it, we, we, we acknowledge it. We're created to be in awe of his glory, to be awe-inspired, if you will, so that our lives are motivated and fueled by all that our Father is. So to see it, to acknowledge his glory, to be in awe of his glory, to be made, to be made glad by his glory. And ultimately, as his image bearers, we are created to reflect that glory. That is what we are created for, so that others would see us and see the way that we live and the way that we treat people and all of these things, and their attention would actually be directed to the one who created us, and they'd say, wow, he is, he is an awesome God and a good father. That's what we're created for. And so we could, we, could, we could summarize all of that this way. The more of God's glory that I see, the more I live. Like if this is what I'm created for, the more I see his glory and enjoy it and, and find life in it, the more I actually live. The more in awe of God's glory I am, the more alive I am, the more I experience life the way that God intended the more in awe of God's glory that I am, the more my heart is made glad. And the more I enjoy and know and reflect his glory, the more fully my humanity is expressed. Switchfoot wrote a, couple, a song a couple years ago, A New Way to Be Human. That's a line in there, right? Anybody know that song? Somebody, new way to be human. This is the way to be human. Like, it's not new, though. It's been stated this way since Genesis, since the first days, all through the prophets. Like, this is God's design for us to be human. So our humanity is more fully known, actually, as our eyes are directed off of ourselves and directed on the God who created us. The more we're in awe of who he is and the more our hearts are made glad by that, the more fully our humanity is known and redeemed and expressed. It's not bad. God is working to restore our humanity and redeem. Like it's, it's a good design. We were created in his image. And so he's restoring this, that we would live in awe of his glory. And that's why when, man, we, we, a couple weeks ago, we learned about that old document known as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And they just led with the first question. It's the ultimate question. What is the chief end of man? They're just asking like, what are we here for? What, is, what do we exist for? Remember their answer? Man's chief end is 
to glorify God, to, 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 to see him and be in awe of him and to reflect him and to enjoy him forever. That, this is why we exist. So that was week one. I wrote all that in summary while I was sitting at my dining room table. Dining room table is next to a big window with a cool windowsill. On that windowsill is a little fish tank, just a couple gallons, with a cute little betta fish in it. Cute little betta fish that was born into captivity and should be free somewhere, swimming and loving life, right? But there he is, captive in my home, right? Serving the whims of my family. Thanks, Cullen family. Where'd you go? You're in here? It was the Cullen's fish. Now he's our fish. And shockingly, he's still alive. We don't have a great track record with plants or animals. So far, our kids are thriving. Right, Johnny? So I wrote all that, and I'm looking at the fish, and I'm thinking, man, we have so much in common with that little guy. What's he do? He swims from side to side, from glass wall to glass wall. Like, I don't know what his brain capacity is. Probably not very great. But by his actions, you kind of get the sense that he knows he doesn't belong in this tank. Like there is a vast body of water somewhere. He knows he's created for that. And if he were there, he would have this joyful existence. I'm just painting a great picture of having pets, aren't I? We have a couple things in common with him. He was born into captivity. He was born into that environment. We are born into captivity. We have this limited view of like, without God's glory being the thing that captures our hearts and our affections, our worlds are shrunk down, right? We know we're created for something else, but all we do is bounce off these walls. We bounce off. We're like, man, my heart is not satisfied. It's gotta be out there somewhere. But the answer is God himself the answer is God himself. There is a vast ocean or body of water he should be swimming in. Guys, listen, if you are not awe-inspired and made glad and pursuing God's glory, you are like my little betta fish swimming in that shrunk down little tank. You are not living the humanity. You are not living uh, with the passions and the affections and the allegiances and all these beautiful things that God has designed you for. You have been created to swim in a vast ocean of God's glory and to be made glad by his glory. And absent his glory being central in his life, your life, you're like my betta fish. You're in this little tank bouncing off the walls. We are created for his glory. So then in week two, Stephen Griffin helped us learn that God's glory is to be our driving motivation in all of life, especially in relationship to other people. And we looked to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul helped us understand that God's glory can't be this abstract thing. We can't claim, hey, we, just, we exist for his glory. We glorify God um, like with his undefined abstract thing. Like it makes a real and profound difference in every aspect of our lives, especially as it relates to our relationships with other people. Here's what Paul said. He said, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what? All, all. There is not an area of life that is not meant to be governed by God's glory. It drives everything for us especially our relationships to other people. This is, look at what Paul said here. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's what it looks like to have a life that is compelled by God's glory. This is it right here. This is super concrete. And in verse 33 of that same chapter, he summarizes it this way. To live for God's glory looks like this. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. So seeking the advantage of other people with this end in sight that they may be saved. And what is it to be saved? To be captured by God's glory and to pursue his glory and to live in awe of his glory and to reflect his glory. In other words, he's saying we have, we have seen his glory. We've tasted it. We've benefited from it. So now living a life that glorifies God looks like 
all of my relationships, all of my relational decisions now are motivated by this because I want other people to see and to taste that God is good and his glory is amazing. That's what it looks like. So let's just review quickly the last couple of weeks. Glory is the weight of all that God is and the display of his infinite excellence. We exist for God's glory and God's glory is to be our driving motivation in all of life especially in relationship to other people. And today, as we wrap our series, God's glory gives hope, which fuels joy, especially in seasons of suffering. Let me just show you that we're not making that up. It comes from the passage that we've been learning together. Here's Romans 5. Let's read it together. Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Look, Paul says it right in the heart of this passage. We rejoice, and rejoice is just the verb form of joy, okay? So we have joy that shapes our voice and our actions that is rooted in some kind of hope that we receive when the glory of God is our pursuit, right? And not only that, he says, this hope is so profound, the joy it produces is so life-changing. Look at, we rejoice in our sufferings. So we had a little moment of honesty in the, actually we had several moments of honesty in the first worship gathering, and it would do us well to have some of those now. Um, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Who likes to read those words? Do you like that sentence? Like, does it rest on your heart like, yes, that. We want the outcome. Like one of you raised your hands. And I think what we're saying is we want want the freedom or the ability. We want to be able to rejoice in our sufferings. But I I don't want the sufferings, I'll tell you that. I don't want... um, I mean, can I just rejoice not in suffering, Dad? Like, is that, is that okay? Like, so, so my, I just want you to know that as, as, a, as your brother, my first uh, impulse or the way that I feel when I read this is, I'll just be honest, like, I don't like that sentence. Um, I don't want to have to rejoice in sufferings, Dad. Like, can you just give me the other thing? Um, and, and I know, we know just from reading this passage, there are things like patience and endurance and like hanging in there and working for this thing. My heart doesn't want to have to do the work to be able to rejoice in sufferings. So can we just acknowledge this up front that we read stuff like this and we're like, man, this, this is, that's tough. And we don't naturally desire this. Our hearts are not naturally inclined to this, nor do we, can we just say we don't naturally do well at rejoicing in suffering? So I don't do well at rejoicing in sufferings, but that's an understatement. Um, I don't rejoice in suffering. Like I do the opposite of what this passage is saying, right? So um, let's just allow the gospel to give us that freedom to admit that, man, this is, this is a big deal for us. Paul says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, but not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. That's really countercultural. 
In fact, the cultural answer is remove the suffering so that you can be joyful. That's the answer we'd give most any counseling scenario. Like we need to find a way to remove you from this suffering so that joy can be restored. God, our father's looking at us through the gospel saying, I can make your heart glad and rejoicing even in the suffering. It's opposite, right? It's countercultural. But before we get to all of that and the rejoicing and sufferings, we have to answer a very important question because I think we agree we want that. We're a little afraid of what it's saying and a little afraid of the work and resistant to it. And we know we, we're really bad at it, but we do want the outcome. I would like to get to the point where when I'm sinned against or when circumstances are really hard, there is abiding joy there. Like that's not, I don't lose it. My life is not a roller coaster. Like there's some consistency and God has grown me up in that way. I would like the outcome I don't really like the sense of how he's going to get me there. But before we talk about that, I think we need to ask this question, who is included in this we that we're talking about? Paul's used the word we a couple times. We are able to rejoice in sufferings. Are you a part of who Paul is talking about? Like, are we in this we? Notice how he began the paragraph. He said, therefore... Um, now, normally, you guys know this, your rule of, uh, rules of studying the Bible. When you encounter the word, therefore... Well, this is true of any literature. Which direction do you typically need to move in the text to know what the author's talking about? Backwards. Got to go backwards to figure out what in the world's going on. Paul does us a favor. You don't actually have to go backwards here. Why? Therefore, comma, since we have been justified. He's just letting you know we've been talking about this thing called justification and your need for justification and the reality that God has justified us. And now I'm going to talk about what is true in our lives because of this justification or the implications of it. So who are the we? Who can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God even in suffering seasons? The justified. The we he's talking about are those who are justified. The justified. To be justified is to have guilt removed. Uh, that's what it means to be justified. You are guilty and somebody else has removed your guilt and declared you just or right. So you're, you're justified now. To be justified is to move from condemned to being cleared. So it's kind of a legal term. You were condemned for something you actually did. So justification doesn't mean that, oh, that was a, uh, you were actually innocent. We made a mistake in declaring your guilt. Justification says, no, the indictment of guilt was for real. Like you deserved this sentence but we're gonna declare you righteous because of something else. So to be moved from condemned to cleared and in the right. Did you know, I mean, the Bible's gonna say we're all in need of justification. We all need to be justified. But did you know that your need for justification is actually directly related to your failure to live for God's glory? Like they're directly related to each other. So we're created to live for his glory. That means we're created to have the highest affections for him. We love him and we gladly obey him and we embrace living for his glory, not our own. And we embrace living for the good of other people um, and not ultimately for our own self-fulfillment or our own good. But if we were to go back, like we should when we see the word therefore, we find ourselves in Romans chapter three, verse 23. We saw this a couple weeks ago and Paul writes this, for all have sinned. What was our sin? What was our, our ultimate rebellion? We fell short of the glory of God. So all of your rebellion against God, all of your transgression, all of your sin, even this morning, whatever you did in rebellion to God, whatever disbelief, whatever, whatever rebellion, it's all anchored in 
this failure to live for God's glory. It's all anchored right here. So all have sinned and we all in our sinning, we have fallen short of the glory of God. And so this creates a need for justification. And Paul goes on to say then, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's our justification. Why do we need this justification? Because we learn in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages or the consequence or the just judgment of my sin, of my failure to glorify God is death, not only in this life, but in the next, right? So it's an eternal death, an eternal judgment, an eternal separation, but it's happening now if we are not living to glorify God. Remember, if we've been created for this, anything less than living to glorify God, anything less than enjoying him and pursuing him and reflecting him, anything less than that is a death in and of itself because it's a failure to actually be who God created me to be as his image bearer, as a human. We need this justification. John Ransom needs to be justified because I have not lived for God's glory with all of my life. And it's not just that the falling short, I let, Paul uses that word fall short and some of us like to kind of see in that like this incidental, like oh, I was almost there, but I fell short. No, that's a willful falling short is what he's saying. Like we, uh, it was no like, oops, I did it again or oh, I almost made it. Like I was so far off the mark I'm still so far off the mark. I need to be justified because I am guilty of not living for God's glory. I'm guilty of living for my own glory. I need to be justified because God's glory is not my driving motivation in all of life. Like today, God's glory has not been my driving motivation in all of my choices and in all of my relational interactions. It just hasn't been. And I need to be justified for this. Paul goes on to talk about um, what we contribute to our justification. So we need it. Look in verse, verse one of chapter five. If you had to answer the question, what do we contribute to our own justification? What's the answer that Paul gives in verse one? See it? It's one word. Oh, sorry. Yeah, chapter five, verse one. There we go. What are we justified by? Faith. That's your contribution to your justification. Some of us are like, man, I don't really know what that looks like. Wait, what, what faith? Well, faith in Jesus, we see that. But what does that look like? On the same page that we see Romans 5, you can, you can bounce back, chapter 4, verse 20, verses 20 to 25. Uh, Paul's talking about Abraham, and he says, No unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Okay, now look at verse 21. This is one of the clearest definitions of faith. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Faith is believing that God is able to do what he's promised. Faith is believing that God is able to do what he's promised. So able and willing, fully convinced. But it doesn't stop with the, like, you can be convinced of something, but fully convinced implies that Abraham acted on this conviction that God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. So he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was, look at what's in quotes, counted to him as righteousness. That sounds like a definition for justification, right? That we just, we just looked at being counted to him as righteousness. So that is why his faith justified him. But the words that it was counted to him, Abraham, were not written for his sake alone. But look, 
This is for your encouragement. This is for our understanding, for ours also, so that we understand that it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Who are the justified? Who are the we that Paul is taught? Who receives the benefit of being able to hope in the glory of God and having that hope-fueled joy? You are in the we if you have acknowledged your rebellion, your rebellion to God, you've repented of that, and you believe, you are fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised and you place all of your faith in the justifying work of Jesus as your rescuer. That's what it means to be justified. Paul says, since we have been justified, implying that a couple things. One, it's happened to us. I don't accomplish my own justification. I have faith in the work that Jesus does to get me justified. But he says, we have been justified. It was done to me and for me, or as we read in Romans 3, it was by his grace as a gift. The work of justification is a grace. That just means we don't deserve it. We've never done anything in our lives for God to look down and be like, wow, John was so close. I just need to get him over the edge a little bit and get him into my family. He deserves justification. No, the father always looks down and be like, rebel son, rebel son, rebel son, rebel son, rebel daughter, rebel daughter. Like I've got to do the work to justify them. And he sends Jesus to, to do the justifying work on our behalf. So it happens to us. It happens to us, but it's also in the past. Our justification is in the past. We have been justified. The work is done. The work is done. Jesus did everything necessary for our justification so that when it's given to us as a gift, so here, Ron, I'm gonna justify you. That is the Father giving to Ron or to any one of you who have been justified an irrevocable gift, irrespective of your performance. It's irrevocable. It's done, but it has ongoing benefit. So let's show my age a little bit, but, and it's kind of a weak analogy, but it's what I thought of this morning, last night. Remember the Energizer Bunny commercials? The 80s, 90s? It's way back. Still going. That's where I was going. He's still going, right? That was kind of the catchphrase for the Energizer Bunny. It's this little rabbit with a drum powered by, Ener uh, by Energizer batteries. And commercials would just kind of pick up where they left off before, almost without a clean beginning. It's almost like he busts on the scene out of nowhere. The point being made, he doesn't stop. He just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. That's the idea behind justification. It's done. The work has been done in the past. It's this irrevocable gift that he gives to us. But now the benefits of the justifying work on our behalf they just keep going and they keep surfacing and they keep showing up in our lives. In other words, the father, when we are adopted into the we, is letting us know that I'm going to work in your life and I will never tap out. The, the benefits of this justifying work will keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. What are those benefits? Paul rehearses just a few of them here. First, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I was loaded with guilt for living to glorify myself instead of my creator. I was loaded with shame for all the shameful ways I've lived for my own self-advancement, even using other people for my self-advancement rather than living for God's glory and the good of other people. Jesus comes and in my place, he takes all of that guilt and all of that shame and he takes it to the cross and the father actually punishes 
Jesus, my perfect older rescuing brother, in my place, and the perfect life that Jesus lived, like Jesus is the only one who's ever perfectly glorified the Father, loved him perfectly, obeyed him perfectly, found his joy in him, ultimately lived for the good of others to his own uh, self-denial and to his own detriment going to the cross. And so all the credit that Jesus had for living a perfectly glorifying life was then placed on my name. That's what justification is. He took all of my guilt and all of my shame, and I received the credit for his perfectly God-glorifying life. So now we have peace with God. We have also obtained access into this grace, Paul says, in which we stand. So he's talking about our position in the family. John Ransom stands in God's family. I'm part of the we, but not because God justified me, and now that I'm justified, I'm killing it as a son. Nope. He's saying, you stand by grace, John. Like, you got into the family by grace. You didn't deserve to be a part of the we, but I justified you because of what Jesus did on your behalf. And now here's the good news. I'm more committed to you as a son than you are committed to me as a dad. And I will keep you in my family. I will not kick you out of the family because your acceptance is based upon Jesus' performance on your behalf. And guys, that's really good news for you, right? Because pre-justification, we didn't care about God's glory. Now we care about God's glory, but who's, who's killing it day in and day out? Like who could honestly say after any day, every decision I made today was motivated by and compelled, the way I treated my spouse, the way I interacted with my kids, the way I worked by God's glory. Nobody. So if it were true that we could be kicked out of God's family based on our performance, we would be daily kicked out of God's family based on our performance. But Paul says we stand by grace. My, my position in this family is kept, God keeps me because of grace. It's a gift. I don't deserve it. He's more committed to me as a son than I am committed to him as a father. And so this, this leads to Paul's statement, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And this hope, this, this, this joy-giving hope is so powerful, it leads us to this point where we can with integrity say that we even rejoice in our sufferings. Here's what's so compelling about that statement. What was once the source of my condemnation now becomes the source of my hope and joy. Why was I condemned before for falling short of the glory of God? That was the very thing that proved my condemnation. I was judged for this. But then in my justification, in that instant, all of God's glory stood against me in condemnation. But because of Jesus' work on my behalf, by faith in his work, now all of the Father's glory serves as the singular and most powerful um, motivator for my hope and for my joy. It once condemned me, and now it stands as my source of hope and joy. When you have been justified by faith in Jesus, God's glory becomes your primary source of hope, and this hope fuels joy, especially in seasons of suffering. We acknowledge this a little bit uh, before, but again, let's just like let's just be honest about this. Suffering is is real, and two nine, 2019 is really young. Uh, but there's already been more than enough suffering than we would care for, even in our own small community, our own small church family. Maybe the greatest suffering is the fact that you know looming over you is a rotation date where you have to leave this island. Like I know you're all suffering because of that, and your heart wants to stay here with us. And you're in agony, anticipating the day you're yanked off this island, right? 
No, <laughs> no. But there are certain, we love living here, but there are certain realities about living on this island that do introduce real suffering into our lives. Some of you have uh, relentless TAD or TDY cycles that constantly take you away from your family. That's suffering. That's suffering. It may be our least favorite reality of, of living in Okinawa or just the relentless work obligations and the, the ridiculous uh, number of hours you work on any given day or given week where you, maybe you go to work and your kids are still in bed and you get home and they've already gone to bed and uh, both you and your spouse are too exhausted for any meaningful interaction, days at a time, weeks at a time. That's suffering, that produces suffering. 2019 is a new year, so you made new resolutions, and behind every resolution was a hope that something would improve or change about yourself or your circumstances. How you doing? You found two months in that you still have that same heart, don't you, that made resolutions so hard in 2018, but it's still there. And there are actually some very deeply rooted things from your past um, that are still being redeemed, and so they're still producing significant suffering in your life and in your relationships, right? That's suffering. Some of you have been passed over for promotions. Some of you have had your service branch look at you and say, hey, thanks for the time, um, but we're gonna move along to other people and you can, best of, best of luck out there, right? Like that's, that's a suffering. Um, you live in Okinawa. You are still so far from home. And it's not, it's not the distance that causes suffering. It's the cost of that distance that causes suffering. You can get on an airplane and go see your, you could see your people tomorrow. They could come and see you tomorrow, but most of your families don't have that kind of disposable income, do they? You don't have that kind of disposable income. So it feels out of reach. And so there's a certain relational suffering that you wrestle with here constantly, and it doesn't go away. And I know I made light of leaving Okinawa, but this is like any other community you've been in. You have formed some meaningful relationships here, and that's good, and it's right. But you're about to be ripped away from those, and you're going to have to do it all over again. That's a form of suffering. In our own young family, even just this year, we have um, some who have experienced miscarriages. And so the, the euphoria of that sense, I'm gonna be a mom, I'm gonna be a dad, the euphoria turns into a certain kind of agony, an ache. That's a suffering. In our small family, we have no less than three of you uh, who have experienced the death of a loved one who lived back in the States. Some of you have been able to go home to mourn with your families, and some of you have not been able to go home to mourn with your families. I know of at least three of you um, in the span of two to three months. This is a very real thing that creates a suffering. There are marriages in our family that are in seasons of struggle and suffering, so what should be a source of joy is not. There are battles with depression in our community and you feel alone in that battle because you might actually be the life of our family. You laugh a lot, you smile a lot, and so we assume that your soul is good. But it's, it's not a front. You're not trying to deceive us. It's almost like you're trying to convince yourself or move your soul down the road. But you know deep down that that battle with depression is deep and it's lonely and, and you're the only one that knows about it. That's suffering. Some of you struggle in a season of singleness, anticipating, hoping this loneliness will end in the near future. 
but it's a perpetual loneliness. Or maybe, maybe you're, you're, you're in a crowd this size and you should be anchored into community, but you really struggle forming those meaningful relationships and you don't feel that you've assimilated into our family and there's a form of suffering there. Our community is messy, very imperfect. So some of you suffer because of inadvertent offenses that have happened, not intentionally, but you've been offended. Um, and some of you are suffering or have caused suffering because you have chosen to say something or do something. And we, so we need grace and we repent of those things, but there's constant suffering there. And there are physical hardships, illnesses, broken bones. That's how our year started. I had very lofty goals. January is gonna be way different. God said, nope. Well, it's gonna be way different, but not the direction I thought it was gonna be way different in. And then, you know, sometimes we're so deep into suffering that little things happen. And normally it's like no big deal. I get like no big deal. But it almost serves as a trigger point for you to begin doubting God's goodness and faithfulness to you. Like really little thing, but you're already in the suffering and you're like, man, maybe he doesn't care about me. So a week ago, our dryer broke. That's a little thing, right? It's a dryer, it's laundry. But when you're in a season of suffering, that can be kind of that proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. Thankfully, Emma, gave, you gave me a moment of levity, Emma, because you actually said it was kind of fun to have a broken dryer. Remember when you said that? And can I just say what you said next? You looked at me and you said, Dad, probably because this is a lot like when you were a kid, like you all just had to hang ropes around your house and dry your clothes. I'm like, there's more truth to that than you know, though. Can I just give you some good news, though? This text does not say that we rejoice for our sufferings. The command is not that you would be joyful because of the sufferings that are in your life. Wow, thanks, Dad, for giving me another hardship. I really, this is great. And some of us have kind of been led to believe that mature Christianity would get you to the point where you could say that to your father. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying that uh, God works in our hearts in such a way that we can still be joyful in the midst of them. But there's a really big difference between trying to tell somebody, I need you to be thankful for this hardship. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying the gospel is going to get your heart to a place where uh, you, will, you will still have the capacity for joy in the midst of this season of suffering. But why? Why, why? why can we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? How is the glory of God hopeful to us? How does it fuel our joy? Remember, let's go back to our definition just to make sure we understand why this is true. If, the, if, God's, if glory is the full weight of all that God is, and it's all of his infinite excellence, all of his strength, all of his goodness, all of his kindness, being brought to bear in my life for my good in a season of suffering, that is a profound source of hope. And so when we see the full weight of all that God is, if you're in the we, he's your father, okay? So the infinite excellence of who he is, he's, he's infinitely kind. And in his infinite kindness, he's moving towards you with all of that glory in your suffering for your good. That's a really hope-giving thing. He's patient. He's loving. He's, he's filling the blank, and he's moving towards you in your suffering. I know I've shared this story with you before, so I'll be brief, and I won't try to make it funny and all these things. But to me, it's one of the most relevant stories for me as I try to conceptualize why God's glory, the full weight of who he is, should be a hope-giving thing to me as a son. Most of you know I grew up in rural Vermont where, yes, I did run barefoot and without a shirt. So no shirts hanging on the ropes in my house. Um, just living the life that I was supposed to live in the early 80s in rural America, Vermont. It was a beautiful thing. Well, on one particular day, my older brother Daniel and I were barefoot, shirtless, 
loving life, walking through the field next to my house. And we stepped on an underground hive of whatever it was. I don't know, wasps, bees, whatever lives down there and kills people. That. <laughs> stepped on that. Well, as little kids, four and six-year-olds, like, we didn't have the capacity to do what we should have done. I don't know what we should have done. Stop, drop, and roll. That's fire. Uh, run, find a body. I don't know. So we did what you would normally do at that age, or even for some of us in our age now. We freeze. We just stay like we can't do anything else. We freeze. But we scream. We do scream. We're screaming. That's all we're doing. We're screaming. Well, who hears our cry for help? Dad. In fact, we were reading a psalm with the kids earlier this week. Do you remember this one? David listed reasons why he cries out to God in difficulty. And what's the first reason? Do you remember what he said? He said, I cry to God because he hears me. I have a dad, and the reason I pray to him is because he actually hears me and acts on it. So what did my dad do? He was shirtless, by the way. Um, He runs to his sons. This is what glory is, guys. In that moment, I saw the full weight of who my dad was. Not a perfect man, but I saw the full weight of who he was, his compassion for his kids, his loyalty to his kids, his willingness to risk his own well-being for our safety sprinting towards us, swooping me up in one hand, swooping my older brother up in the other hand, and removing us from the danger and bringing us to safety. The full weight of my dad's glory brought to bear on us in our suffering for our good. That's what it means. That's why glory is a source of hope. That's why glory. And so you know what happened in that moment? One of the things is frozen into my mind. I know I was getting stung, but all of a sudden the panic went away. Like, The pain was still there, but knowing that my dad was approaching and would be with me in the pain and would see me through the pain gave me the ability to stand there and endure whatever pain was left. It gave the hope and the joy that even in that, it was almost like this out-of-body thing where I could see myself being stung up, but dad was coming. Dad was there. And that's what Paul is talking about. It's, it's, It's hopeful for us. And this single reality changes our view of our circumstances right now, so much so that we can rejoice in any circumstance, even in our sufferings. This is what Paul explains. Look, he says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, suffering exposes and trims away the unhealth and the weakness in my life. Suffering exposes, so what are those areas of weakness and unhealth? A weakness, what are we created for? God's glory, that is humanity expressed. So what would a weakness in my life be then? Any area of my life that I don't look to my father, that I don't find hope in his glory, that I don't trust him. Like these are my areas of weakness. Suffering exposes all of them, don't they? Like it all comes rushing to the surface and our, our true selves are seen clearly in suffering. So it exposes all of that. God uses the suffering to trim those areas of unhealth and the areas of weakness away. And he replaces those with, he changes my heart. He shows me where I don't trust him, where I don't look to his glory. And he teaches me, Hebrews even said, what did Jesus learn? What? Obedience through his suffering. This is where we learn, guys, to be in awe of God's glory and to look to him and to trust him and to hope in him and to see our father running to us. It produces this endurance so that we can be in the suffering and know that our father, but our father's not just coming towards us in Christ. He's already present with us in Christ. We'll see that in a minute. And it produces this endurance. He strips away those areas of my life where I look to myself or to my circumstances for joy instead of Christ. And as I learn to look to Jesus he actually increases my strength 
so that I can stay in those seasons of suffering and persevere. He actually increases my capacity, because I don't have any capacity in it on myself. I am still that four-year-old boy being stung up by wasps, right? That's me uh, as a grown man. But as I look away from myself and own ability to rescue and change and look instead to Christ, then he, create, he cultivates this capacity to remain in and to persevere, knowing that the Father is working good in my life, even in seasons that I would consider bad. And so he very slowly removes the impatience that I have and cultivates patience. Because again, when we're in suffering, what is the one piece of advice we would give to anybody right off the bat? Get out, change. Father says, no, I'm gonna change you in the suffering. I'm gonna give you life in what you think is a death-filled season. And this endurance produces character. In other words, he's saying, this training that we receive endurance, this reshaping of our hearts, this refocusing off of our own glory and on to God, the Father's glory, actually produces character. And what would that character be talking about? He's restoring in us who we were created to be, to be in awe of God's glory and to trust him and love him and obey him. So this endurance and suffering produces this character that's being recreated in us, slowly restoring us to our created purpose in Christ, to see his glory and be in awe of his glory and to trust that he is a good father and to endure suffering and to trust him that he's using it for my good. And this character produces the hope that he's talking about. In other words, he's saying, the more I am the glorifier that God created me to be, the more I look to my father and the more I trust him and reflect him, the more I will find this hope is being cultivated in my life. And did you know, in the New Testament, the sense of the word hope is never, it's never like, oh, I hope so. I hope, I hope this happens. It's not a, a wringing of the hands or crossing the fingers. If we were to translate it literally, it means confident expectation. Just like I knew when I was getting stung to death, I was probably near death. It makes the story cooler. I think in EpiPen, we didn't have EpiPens back then. Um, but if we did, I would have gotten one. There was nothing that would stop my dad from coming to us. I wasn't standing there hoping, dad, like, I wonder, like, is he gonna do the math in his head and decide, how much do I love John? I'm just gonna let him be, or eh, our family would be a little better off. I wonder how long this will take. Like, there was nothing that was gonna stop dad from coming to my rescue. There was no, I hope he comes. There was just a confident expectation, dad's coming. Dad's gonna be with me. Dad's gonna see me through this. That's the idea of the word hope in the New Testament. And as we look to Christ, this kind of hope is cultivated in us. And that's what Paul says. This hope does not put us to shame. I was not put to shame on that day. You will not be put to shame when your hope is in Christ because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is Paul's way of saying what I've just told you about God's glory and having your hope anchored here and your joy anchored here is not some impersonal theological truth now. Like you didn't just get a class on God's glory and check the box and you're good to go now. I'm telling you about something that he does for you personally, Paul's saying. If you have been justified, the Father has given you the Holy Spirit and he is with you now. God is present with you in this pain you know how we talked about justified being past tense with ongoing benefits? What about this verse right here where it's talking about the love of God? What tense is that? Will pour it out? If you're a good son or a good daughter, if you endure suffering, if you prove your worth to the family, if I decide I'm gonna keep you, before your season of suffering, which we are all jacking up right now, none of us are going through the suffering well, what did the father do for us ahead of time? 
poured out his love. He gave you his spirit. There was no waiting. There's no proving. There's no performing in his family. He's saying, I adopted you in. You're part of the we. Here's all the love that I have to give. And here's my spirit to be present with you in your pain, to whisper to you, to scream to you, to shout to you, I love you. And we need to hear this because unfortunately, some of us have been trained up in expressions of Christianity that tell us that God's love would keep us from suffering. Or if I was a really good Christian, he wouldn't allow suffering into my life. I just need to have more faith or be better and he won't allow suffering. But notice what's happening here. The Father's allowed suffering into the lives of people that he loves with every ounce of love he has to give. And you do have the spirit and you have expressed faith and suffering is a normative reality in life. So it's not that God doesn't love you. It's not that God's love will keep you from seasons of suffering, but that God's love will see you through these seasons of suffering and he will work redemptively in your life through them. But again, full, full, full disclosure, I, don't like, I still don't like it. I don't like the suffering. If God had a bunch of toddler kids, we would be his toddler kids. Like we know what dad's saying, but we're sitting down on the inside and we don't really like it. Like we don't, we don't like it. The spirit tells us that we will not be destroyed by this suffering. Sometimes we've been told that suffering in our lives are a result of God punishing us. But if you are part of the we and you have been justified, Jesus took all of the punishment for your rebellion in your place. So none of your suffering is present in your life because God is working punitively against you or because God is punishing you. Jesus took it all. You are not suffering because the father is punishing you. The, um, not at all. So we need to wrap this up. We could keep pressing and we should keep pressing. We could introduce some suffering through the length of the sermon so that we could better relate, but let's not do that. I just want to ask a couple questions before we close. It's possible that you're sitting here and we described who the we are and what it has to do with justification. And you're like, man, I don't think I'm justified. Like, I don't, I don't think I'm in the we. Can I implore you today to place your faith in the justifying work of Jesus, to admit your rebellion against the Father, and to turn to Christ and trust that he, he did make this promise to you and he is able to fulfill the promise and he will keep the promise to you so that what is presently the source of your condemnation, falling short of God's glory, could actually become the source of your hope instead but you've got to believe it, it is on you to place your faith in the finished work of Christ. You alone can make that decision for yourself and you have to make that choice. You have to repent and believe. You've got to place your faith in the finished work of Christ. And I would just implore you to please acknowledge your rebellion and allow the father to give to you deep and profound hope out of what is presently your condemnation. For those of you, you're working through Romans 5, and you're like, man, I'm so glad I'm in the we. Like, I'm justified. I love it. I'm thankful for God's grace. Would you just join me in confessing that we do not rejoice in the hope of the glory of God very well in our suffering? Like, let's confess that together. Let's be honest. No pretending in here. None of us are killing it at rejoicing in our sufferings. It is a weakness we all share. Let's confess that weakness. Let's be honest about it. Let's press into our community. Let's not any one of us pretend that there's no suffering present in your life right now. There is some. There is some. Let's press into community and confess these things together and rehearse the gospel together. But don't just confess the weakness. Thank our Father that we are accepted by him based upon Jesus' performance and his justifying work, not our own. Like, don't lose hope that you don't do well in suffering. 
Welcome to the rest of humanity. None of us do well. All of God's kids are adopted in and accepted by grace. Let's thank him that he keeps us even though we don't do well at glorifying him or finding joy in seasons of suffering. Now, some would actually give what would turn out to be very unhelpful advice, but sometimes it's given in the guise of Christianity, but it's, it's not helpful. They would say to you, a good Christian doesn't look at their circumstances. You look to God instead. It's not the gospel, guys. The gospel never calls you to lie about your circumstances or to be naive about them or to pretend that somehow they don't exist and everything's going to be okay. The gospel is the most liberating truth that allows us to be honest and real about our present sufferings. So don't look away from them. Don't close your eyes and be the little kid who pretends that the monster's not right there when in reality it is right there. Like, let's be honest about this. Let's look to God the Father first, though. Let's look to him first. Let's rehearse all of the ways that the full weight of who he is is moving towards us for, it, for our good. Let's rehearse that he is present with us in our pain, that he loves us, that he's using every moment of our suffering redemptively for our good. And let's continue to encourage each other because here's what we commonly express in, in suffering, but I don't hear him. I don't sense his presence. I feel alone. I feel alone in my suffering. I doubt that he cares. Guys, as gently as I can say this, and look, I'm saying this to myself. Like if I could turn my face around and talk to myself right now, I would. The spirit speaks to us through the word, through our Bibles. He speaks to us through his word and he comforts us through the word. So in seasons where we can't hear him or sense his presence, it's not that he's absent and it's not that he doesn't care and it's not that he doesn't love us. His voice is heard through the word and through our time in prayer. We just need to be encouraging each other that we need to stop. We need to be quiet. We need to fill our ears with the father's voice. This is why we're learning those passages together over the years so that we will have our father's voice ringing through our ears so that when we are, we are paralyzed through the stinging, we will have no doubt that he is good and that he is moving towards us in Christ. Let's turn to the word and let's turn to prayer. And let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've adopted us into the we. If there are any here this morning who have not yet place their faith in the finished work of Jesus. Father, would you give them the gift of faith today? Would you give them the freedom to acknowledge their rebellion and to embrace the free gift of grace that they too can be adopted in because of what Jesus has done for them? And Father, if they have, if anybody here who is not part of the we has any illusion that those of us in the family think we're awesome or deserve to be here or are just killing it as your kids, Father, may they see in us just acknowledgement after acknowledgement that we have been adopted in by grace and we stand by grace. And if we could be kicked out based on our performance, we would, but you keep us and it's incredible. Father, there are people in here this morning who are really suffering and some are suffering alone. God, I pray that you would show them extra grace. I pray that they would know your presence in their pain. I pray that you would wipe away their tears. I pray that you would restore, restore their joy. Father, please don't allow any of us to treat this lightly. Give us humility.
to acknowledge our need for you, to turn to you, to just fill our hearts and our, our minds with your word so that we hear your voice and we know your presence. Father, don't let us walk out of this room without turning away from ourselves and turning to you and your glory so that we can see you running towards us in the full weight of all that you are as a kind and loving and faithful dad working for our good, even in our suffering, and that it would cultivate such a patience that we, we're okay, we can stay in this, knowing that you'll see us through and that you use us for our good. And Father, I pray that you'd produce profound joy out of all this. Restore the joy of those who are just sorrowful this morning in Christ. And we pray this all in his name.